We're uh, on the book of Joshua now. And the let's just remind ourselves where we are. We've uh, seen Moses lead Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years, having come out of Egypt. And then after the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses is dead and his leadership has been taken over by Joshua, whose book we're going to look at now. The date is around 1400 BC. So we come tonight, on the, the Israel are just about to move into the promised land and to conquer it. So we have tonight the conquest of Canaan. And let's, right from the start, get the symbolism of this book, the typology of this book. Um, Joshua, who's the leader now of Israel, uh, is what Yeshua comes out of when Yeshua is transliterated from the Hebrew into English. But if you transliterate Yeshua into Greek, it comes out Jesus. And it means saviour. So basically, Joshua's name is Jesus. That's what his name means. It's the same. Saviour. So Moses, through whom came the law, is dead. He died in the wilderness, as did a whole generation of Israel. And of course, that's all the law can do. Bring death. That's all it does. It kills you. The law brings death. Um, it cannot bring you salvation. And it cannot bring you a victorious Christian life, because it's all to do with man's effort, and man's effort is no good whatsoever. But grace and truth, the free gift of God through Jesus Christ, came through Jesus. Therefore, it's Joshua, whose name is Jesus, who leads God's people into the promised land. It was a gift. God gave it to them as a gift. It was the promised land. So, therefore, there you've got the symbolism. Moses, the law, is dead, all right? And now Joshua, grace, salvation, the free gift of God, leads Israel into the promised land. And uh, Canaan, as we're going to see, was a place of warfare. Uh, they had to destroy the inhabitants. All the Canaanites, all the different nations who lived in the land of Canaan, were under God's judgment. And God had judged them and said, right, you've lost it, I'm going to give this land to another people, the people of Israel. And uh, so basically, the Israelites are going to move into Canaan, they're going to dislodge the Canaanites uh, from the land. And, uh, you know, take away from them what was previously theirs. And so you've got a picture of spiritual warfare, plundering the strong man's goods. Um, and the New Testament counterpart book really is Ephesians. Ephesians is... You know, in Ephesians, Paul deals in the early chapters with kind of what God has done through us, you know, for us through Jesus, that we're raised up and Satan's under our feet. And then he ends the epistle talking about spiritual warfare. So really, Joshua is the acting out in history of the doctrine that we find in Ephesians. Right, okay, um, so let's, let's move into it. Chap chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we have actually the key to all leadership of God's people the key to how leadership in the kingdom of God should be. And that what you get in verse 1, God speaks to Joshua and tells him various things. And, uh, and then in verse 10, Joshua 
then speaks to the people, translating what he's heard from God into action. And then in verse 16, the people speak to Joshua and pledge their obedience to him to the extent um, that he is truly declaring God's word. And uh, so, so there you've got the order, you know, God, God speaks to Joshua, then Joshua speaks to the people, and then the people speak to Joshua. But if you read um, in verse 16, what the people say is, right, we're going to be with you, we're going to follow you, only may the Lord your God be with you, i.e. they're saying, as long as you're walking in God's will, as long as you're declaring God's word, we're with you. And what God basically tells Joshua um, is that the land is theirs. God says, look, I've given it to you, it is already yours. And then the Lord says that it's going to become theirs experientially as they put their feet down on more and more of it. So the point is that what God is saying, the promised land is yours. There you go, it's already yours. And in one sense, it was theirs already. But in another sense, they had to come into it, they had to appropriate it. So that as they went forward into Canaan following the Lord, Every bit of land that they put their foot down, God would give them. He'd drive the enemy off. And so you can see the two aspects. Like the victorious Christian life, on the one hand it's yours already. Fullness of life in Christ. But on the other hand you have to take it step by step, pushing the enemy off as the Lord leads you. So the two aspects there of uh, you know, really coming into uh, the fullness of the Christian life. So the land was theirs but they had to take it step by step and God would push the enemy back before them. And also, uh, Joshua is told to ensure that he's obedient to the word of God. I, you know, sort of like the bits of the Bible that he had so far, you know, which was basically the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses um, wrote. And, uh, you know, and, and, and God says, right, make sure that you're living in obedience to that. So there's obedience to the word of God. And then Joshua tells Israel that they're going to cross the Jordan and go over in three days. So at this point, we're three days before the nation actually passes over the river Jordan. And, um, and what happens is, we saw, uh, I think it was either last time or the time before, that Reuben... Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh had arranged with Moses that they would have the land the other side of the Jordan so that they wanted to settle just outside the promised land and Moses had agreed with them that they could do that but only on the condition that their men fought all the battles in the land of Canaan and only afterwards came back out of the land and settled what became known as the Transjordan and so uh, Joshua ensures that the men of Reuben Gad and half Manasseh leave their family um, as agreed with Moses and are and, and now prepared to march with the, the armies of the rest of the tribes of Israel. Now in chapter 2, uh, two spies are sent out to have a little reconnoiter of uh, Jericho. Now as they go over the Jordan, the first battle that they're going to have to face, the first city in their way, or the first city that they've got to take, is Jericho. It was the first city on their route into the Promised Land. And so therefore they send two spies out to have a reconnoitre to see what the um, situation there is. And these, these two spies, they, um, they end up lodging with a prostitute called Rahab. And uh, Rahab becomes a believer through their testimony. She, as it were, gets converted. And uh, she, she actually tells them that, that the Canaanites and all the people of Jericho 
um, were absolutely terrified of them. And she said, you know, we know that we're beaten. And that's, that's fascinating, because what we need to know is Satan is more frightened of you than you are of him. I mean, you know, sort of, e even when you're, you're in defeat, Satan is still terrified of you, because he knows that at any minute you can pick yourself up and get right with God. And, and Satan is terrified of Christians. And all the inhabitants of Canaan, Rahab tells them, we've been terrified of you since, since you came across uh, the Red Sea that 40 years earlier. So that was an encouraging bit of news for them. Now, what happens is that... Um, the king discovers that these spies are there and search parties are sent out and um, so she rescues them, you know, and it, it is, you know, sort of she puts her, her life in danger and she hides them in, in, in her house and it would have been in the walls. It was very often, you know, the case in these walled cities where they actually had rooms and houses in the walls and so she hid them um, in, in her house which was um, in the walls and, uh, and basically what, what they do is they tell her to, to hang a scarlet ribbon outside of her window. And therefore, when eventually the Israeli army came in to invade Jericho and beat them up and kill everyone and blah, 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 that anyone who was in her room with the scarlet ribbon hanging outside of the wall, anyone in her room would be spared that judgment from God's people. So that any Canaanites in that room wouldn't be put to death. And of course, what you've got here is kind of, um, you know, it was scarlet, you know, the ribbon. And it was kind of, you know, scarlet is the colour of blood. And what you've got here is Rahab, who becomes a Christian, in effect. She gets, you know, she's got her own private Passover here. Do you remember the Passover, that if Israel put the blood on the lintels of the doors and therefore the angel of death passed over, they were under the blood, the judgment didn't touch them. Well, here Rahab has got converted and through her testimony, anyone else who gets converted, I comes in and shelters in her room under, as it were, the blood. When the judgment came, they will be spared as well. And, uh, you know, and of course it was that, that story that inspired that, that quite famous song uh, that actually got into the charts a few years ago. It got to number one. I think it was Tony Orlando and Dawn. You know the one? Um, I'll tie a scarlet ribbon round the city walls, yeah? Right, okay. Well, that was, that was where the inspiration for that, <laughs> um, for that came from. And of course, in the book of Hebrews and also the book of James in the New Testament, Rahab is, is singled out as an example of being saved by faith and also how faith leads you to action because she rescued the spies even though it's um, only even though it put her own life at great danger and so therefore the two spies having escaped uh, they go back to Joshua and uh, report to the people that Canaan was terrified that all all the peoples were petrified and they came back saying it's as good as ours it is absolutely as good as ours and that was true faith at last. Do you remember 40 years earlier when the spy, 12 spies went in and 10 of them came back saying no chance? Only two of them came back and said, that's okay, it's ours. Well now the spies come back and they say, let's go get it because it's ours. The people are terrified. God is with us. And so in chapter 3 we come to the actual crossing of the Jordan because this, this massive river is, is standing in their way. So Israel has got to go across Jordan and in doing so, enter into the promised land. And what happens is that the priests walk into the centre of the river first, carrying the ark.
Uh, and what happens is, as their feet go in at the sides of the river, this is the party of the priests, you know, the Levites. We saw, I think it was back in... Uh, Exodus, or, 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 or at least a few talks ago, we saw the specific order of the tribes and who carried the ark, all right? Now, the designated Levites, they carry the ark, and as soon as their feet touch the side of the river, the waters part. And so these priests carry the ark, and they stand in the centre of the river, and they stay there in the middle until all the people pass over. And, you know, there's a lot of people. And... Um, and, and then once the people are across, the priests come out and the waters close over again. And uh, if, if, if crossing the Red Sea, when Israel came out of Egypt, if that was a picture of, of passing out of the world into the kingdom of God, because of course Egypt represented the world, um, so if, if that represented being saved or being justified, all right, um, and if, if the wilderness represents, you know, because they all died in the wilderness, if the wilderness represents dying to the world and dying to self and God's dealings and testing and stuff like that, then crossing the River Jordan pictures entering into the battle against Satan. It, 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 it pictures the entering into what you might call the spiritual warfare aspect of God dealing with us and sanctifying us. Because, of course, say, you know, God uses everything Satan does, and to be involved in spiritual warfare is not just taking what is Satan's, but it's also part and parcel of the Lord using that warfare to do a work in us so that more and more we're delivered from the power of sin and more and more the new life, the new nature, the life of Jesus inside of us comes through. So, chapter 3, the nation passes over. So, by the time we get to chapter 4, this process is still going on. And what happens is, before the priests come out of the river with the ark, while the waters are still parted, Joshua sends 12 men back into the river, all right? Um, one from each tribe. And he sends them back to get a stone each. So these 12 guys, one from each tribe, just before the Levites walk out with the ark, while the waters are still raised up, they go back in and they bring a stone each out of the riverbed. And then what happens is, when they come out, uh, then the waters, you know, return and the river's flowing as normal. And what they do is they make a memorial of these stones. So they build a little kind of altar of these 12 stones and it becomes a memorial of what God had just done for them. And that memorial basically did two things. It ensured that the miracle wouldn't be forgotten. It was always there as a landmark to them. This is what God did. God was for always reminding them of what he did when he brought them across the Red Sea. And now there's a memorial to remind them that now he'd worked another almighty miracle for them. And those memorials are important because don't we forget? How long does it take to forget the last thing that you knew God did for you? It doesn't take us long, does it? And then we're, oh, God never does anything. Blah, blah, blah. We need these memorials, and Israel needed that memorial to remind them of that great miracle. And the second thing it did, it, un it, it emphasised their unity and fellowship as God's people, because there were 12 tribes. There is a picture of the church, um, that there's no isolation. No, no one tribe could make it on their own. They needed each other. And the same with us, individual believers. We need fellowship with other believers if we're to grow. And certainly if we're to engage with spiritual warfare. If you end up isolated, Satan will marmalise you. In fact, you can be absolutely certain of this. 
If you end up being spiritually isolated, that is Satan working. Yeah, there can be exceptions. There have been believers in different countries who have ended up in prison. They're isolated. But the point is, the moment, the moment you think, no, I'm, I'm not going to go to the meetings, I'm, you know, we, the moment we start drawing back from fellowship, that is Satan trying to isolate us. Because once he's got you isolated, bang, he'll let you have it, and he will marmalise you. Now then, in chapter 5, um, there's something that all the males needed to have done to them that they hadn't had done, and that is being circumcised. This, this is the eye-watering chapter, lads, all right? Uh, that generation hadn't been circumcised, and so they were. They were circumcised. Um, now then, you know, what is this circumcision all about? You know, it was, you know, more or less the, you know, sort of like, if, if Israel had circumcision, we in the Christian church have baptism. Now, what was circumcision about? It was the cutting away of the flesh. It was the cutting away of the flesh. It was the picture of the sword of the spirit, cutting away the flesh, dealing with the self-life, separating us from that former life. And, uh, you know, the cross ever stands before us. All spiritual warfare must be done at the foot of the cross. And uh, they called that place Gilgal because in that circumcision, the Lord said, I've rolled away now the reproach of, of Egypt. You know, he's saying now you're dead to all that former life, all that former defeat. I'm rolling it away. I'm cutting it away from you. Now you get a completely different start. And uh, they're given a bit of recovery time because God, God knows that that hurt. And, and I mean, his dealings do hurt in us, don't they? Obviously, we're circumcised in our heart, as Paul says, you know, not in the flesh. We're circumcised in our heart. But the Lord knows it hurts and he gave them recovery time. Didn't send them straight out there to fight the Battle of Jericho. Bit of recovery time. And, uh, and then they celebrate the Passover. Now, they'd only ever done that twice before, hadn't they? They'd done it at the Exodus when they actually came out of Egypt. And then a year or so later, they did it when they were at Mount Sinai, when they were given the law. And, and again, the Passover, here they celebrate it as soon as they get into Canaan. So they're circumcised, and then they celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover all about? The Passover was all about being delivered from Egypt. You know, the blood on your doors, and so the angel of death, the judgment of the firstborn, the judgment passed you by. There was no judgment for you if you had the blood on your, you know, on the lintel of your doors. And so the angel of death passed over, free from judgment. So picture the Passover of being converted. And so what we've got here, circumcision and the Passover, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the death of Jesus and the cross are ever before us. We never move away from the cross of Jesus. And at the end of the day, the deeper we go into the Christian life is just to go deeper into what Jesus did at the cross. That's all the Christian life is. It's going deeper and deeper into what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then the next day after that, they do the Passover, and the next day after that, the manna. Do you remember the manna? They've been living on the manna for 40 years that God provided them every morning. Bit boring, but kept them going. In the Christian life like that sometimes. Bit boring, but you've got to keep going. Now the manna stops, and now they eat the produce of the land. They come into an abundance that they hadn't thus far known. And, 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 and there's one thing that we can all know, there's an abundance that we haven't got yet. And it doesn't matter how far any of us go with the Lord, there's always more of an abundance to come to us. We've never finished growing, we've never got everything that the Lord's got for us. There's always a pressing on. So now they eat abundance, as opposed to the rations of the wilderness years. 
after this, Joshua goes for a wander and he has a little recce of Jericho. He doesn't actually go in, but he's walking, you know, like there's Jericho in the distance. And, and he meets a man with a drawn sword. He meets a soldier there whose sword is drawn. And, and Joshua says, you know, are you for us or for our enemies? And this man says, no. Which is a bit of an odd thing to say. Are you for us or against us? No. And this man with the drawn sword turns out to be Jesus. It's the Lord. It's Jesus in his pre-existence. And Joshua is told to take his shoes off. Do you remember when Moses met the Lord in the burning bush? He was told to take his shoes off. It's a picture of worship. And here Joshua ends up flat on his face. And basically what you've got here is it's the Lord reminding Joshua. Now look, hang on, I, I, I know you're the leader of God's people, but you're not really I am. You know, and Joshua says, you know, what does the Lord bid his servant? You know, Joshua's a bit the big man, oh, how am I going to lead Israel through this? And now he ends up flat on his face, takes his shoes off. Why does he take his shoes off? Well, shoes are for going places in, and Joshua ain't going anywhere. <laughs> it's the Lord going places through him, you see? So, you know, uh, uh, here the Lord reminds Joshua who is really in charge, that uh, the Lord is the leader and not him, all right? Now then, in chapter 6, you get the actual taking of Jericho. And, uh, you know, do you remember all Israel, they're told to march round it once every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they have to march round it seven times. And on the seventh time, if they blow the horns and shout and stuff like that, um, they're not allowed to talk or anything, just walking around the walls in silence, kind of, you know, realising how impossible it was and only the Lord had to do it, blah, blah, blah and uh, walking around in silence, and, uh, but when they shouted, the walls fell down. And, uh, and, and of course, once Satan's holding power was broken, i.e. that was the walls. See, they couldn't get to Jericho because of the walls. So the walls had to come down before they could plunder Jericho, the goods. And of course, the point is the walls represent Satan's holding power, and Jericho inside the walls represented the goods. Well, you've got to bind the, the strong man before he plunder his goods. You see, the satanic hold was broken, the walls came down and therefore they could move in and take the goods that God had promised them, i.e. Jericho. And um, so, so that was fine, in they go and they kill all the people, get all the goods except of course Rahab and, and the people there. And um, they, they'd been told that all the plunder from this city was to be given to the Lord. It was like a first fruits, the first city, so they were to dedicate it all from the Lord. But that all subsequent battles, the booty, the plunder, would be theirs. And, um, and once they've destroyed Jericho, Joshua pronounces a curse against anyone who ever rebuilds it. And of course that rebuilding happened uh, just prior to the ministry of Elijah, as we saw when we did the Elijah series. Anyway, chap chapter 7, um, their second fight. Now, 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 Jericho was a biggie. That was a biggie. Now, 15 miles away was their next target. It's a place called Ai. Um, which means heap. And it, it, it was a very small place. And uh, so they send spies out. They've done Jericho, sorted that. AI next. And AI only little. So the spies go out and reconnoitre. They come back saying how small it was compared to Jericho. Now, 40,000 men were sent against Jericho. Once the walls came in, they, uh, Joshua sent 40,000 men in to, you know, mop up in Jericho. Um, but, but decided that, that only 3,000 would be needed against this little walled city of Ai, which was a real heap, you know, that's what the name meant. It wasn't, it wasn't a very impressive place at all. So in they go, these 3,000 people, and they got marmalised. They got beaten. 
the Jews were beaten back. After this incredible victory in Jericho, which was massive, they now go against this little city of Ai, their next target, and they get beaten. And the Aiites, I suppose that's what you've got to call them, isn't it? If you live in Ai, you've got to be an Ai, haven't you? The Aiites, you know, kind of killed them all and drove them away. Now, Joshua's absolutely gutted. He couldn't believe it. And so he turns to the Lord in prayer. And, um, and the Lord actually said to him, why are you praying to me? See? There, there, there are times when praying isn't the right thing to do. And what, what God said, there's, there's been a sin that's been committed here and it's got to be sorted out. And what happened was that a guy called Achan, who was among the Israelites during the Battle of Jericho, he had kept some of the plunder for himself. And therefore, because he'd done that, Israel was out of fellowship. So now they were doing spiritual warfare, only a little town, but they were doing spiritual warfare out of fellowship. Of course, they got marmalized. If you're not right with God, Satan will give you a kicking. Of course he will. Now, and God said, you know, why are you praying to me? Because, I mean, if we've, if we've got a sin to put right, I mean, don't, don't, don't bother praying or giving or anything else. Put, put the sin right. You know, I mean, sometimes there's a sin we've got to put right, and so we go spiritual, don't we? We're doing everything except repenting of the particular sin that God's convicting us of. But the point is here that unconfessed sin brings defeat in spiritual warfare. And so what happens is that Achan and his family are stoned to death, and so the, you know, the, the, the sin is, is put right. And once the sin is put right, well, then they could proceed. So, in chapter 8, off they go again against little Ai. And, uh, but Joshua now, he's taking no chances. Bit of, bit of humility here, bit of, um, you know, the brashness that, oh, this is easy, is gone now. They're, they're all on their knees a bit more. And so he sends the entire army against Ai. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, Jericho got 40,000, but I mean, sort of, now Ai gets a million odd. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not messing about now. So he sends the whole army in. And because they're back in fellowship with God, God, grants them victory and it's absolutely decisive and AI falls. Only now they keep all the spoils for themselves. Now, doesn't, doesn't that make Achan short-sighted, eh? What a twit. What a twit. He only had to wait, you know, a week or so. And, and aren't there times when we are so short-sighted because there's something we want now we're willing to get out of fellowship with God, when if you just wait a week or two, who knows, maybe the Lord will give it to you and it will be in his will then. So a real bit of short-sightedness there on behalf of Achan. Um, after the Battle of Ai, do you remember this thing about Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? Do you remember that Moses had told Joshua that what he had to do was uh, pro you know, proclaim the blessings from Mount Ebal and all the cursings from Mount Gerizim? Well, they, they do that now. You know, as a reminder to them of the blessings of being in fellowship, but that they're going to be in trouble if they get out of fellowship. And, uh, and then, having done that, he reads the law, the, 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 you know, like the first five books of the Bible, that was all they had then. He reads all that to all of Israel. So there you've got the Word of God and Bible teaching. So spiritual warfare is underway, and here we're seeing right, you know, we're seeing death to self, we're seeing, you know, sort of like repentance from sin, we're seeing the, the foundation, you know, the importance of the Word of God. Can you see all these pictures here? This is really learning about spiritual warfare. That's a typology of this book through the history of it. Right, now then, chapter 9 um, all the kings of, of all the different nations and tribes in Canaan are now well 
on guard. They're well alerted, all right? They've seen Jericho and Ai fall. And uh, so all the rest of the nations in the Promised Land are now really, you know, sort of like, you know, their, their armaments factories, as it were, are now on double time, and, and, and the big showdown is really bubbling up. But what happens now is uh, kind of Joshua gets tricked. And uh, there's the Gibeonites and the Hivites. Now, they were Canaanite tribes. They should have been killed, all right? Eventually, Israel would have got to the Gibeonites and to the Hivites, and they would have wiped them out, as God said. But what happens is that the Gibeonites and the Hivites, um, they, they think, right, okay, we haven't got a chance. So they resorted to trickery. What they did is they dressed like they'd been on this really long journey, all right? And so, you know, sort of, you know, sort of Joshua's there with all the Israelis and everything like that. And the, all these thousands and thousands of people turn up, this massive herd. And they tell him that they've been travelling from a far country for weeks and weeks and weeks. And because they from a, you know, were from a far country, um, he was un, you know, Joshua was under no obligation to destroy them. He was under obligation from God to destroy the Canaanites, but not any of the nations outside of Canaan. With them, he was to always offer peace terms before there was a fight. And so they came along and they say, look, you know, we've been, you know, traveling all these weeks and that. Will you make a treaty for us? Where, you know, sort of enter into a covenant with us. Make a treaty, let's be friends. And so he does that. He makes a treaty with them. Once he's made a treaty with them, he's bound to them as a nation. Then he realizes that he's been tricked duped by the devil. See how cunning Satan is, you know, coming along with deception, because now he has been deceived. So here are these two nations that really he should have destroyed, but he can't destroy them now because he's entered a treaty with them. He was tricked. And so what they do is they, um, you know, they make them slaves instead. You know, that's, that's the only option. They couldn't destroy them, so they made them slaves. But it did, however, with these Hivites and Gibeonites turning up like this, it did at least confirm to Israel how um, terrified all the Canaanites were, that, that, that two of the Canaanite nations should have resorted to this because they were so frightened. The reality was the Canaanites knew that they were beaten because they knew that God was with Israel. All right. Then in chapter 10... Uh, the king of Jerusalem, which of course this is Jerusalem still in Canaanite hands, so don't, don't think of Jerusalem, this was before Israel got Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem forms a coalition with four other kings. And what they then do, and this is interesting, they form a coalition and they attack the Gibeonites and the Hivites and they cart them off. Um, now, of course, the point is that because Joshua had made a treaty with the Gibeonites and the Hivites, because the Gibeonites and the Hivites are now being attacked, Joshua is duty-bound to go and rescue them. So it's sort of like being drawn into a, a trap here, you know, a coalition of five kings. And of course, Satan attacks our past mistakes, because the Gibeonites and Hivites were a mistake. Of course they were. Joshua shouldn't have been duped by them. Satan will always attack your past mistakes, just the way he works, all right? But the point was that Joshua and Israel go after these five armies who are carrying the Gibeonites and Hivites off, and they marmalize them. They massacre them. It's a really easy defeat. And so the point is that, you know, obviously our past mistakes, even though Satan attacks them, they're covered by the blood of Jesus. You know, even when Satan attacks our past mistakes, Stay right with God, 
and as Satan attacks your past mistakes, in effect, it's really God drawing him out into the open and then letting him have it with his big guns. You know, all things work together for good, obviously. Um, and it's at this point that you get the rather remarkable miracle of a 24-hour period when the sun didn't set. Now, don't ask me how God did that, but for a whole day, the sun didn't move in the sky. So you got an elongated day there, 24 hours of uh, daylight, all right. And uh, so after that, Joshua and the army return to their base camp at Gilgal. Now, that's where they got circumcised. At Gilgal, where they all got circumcised as they came across the Jordan, that became their base camp for all the, all the you know, for the campaign. And of course, this same picture, always go back to the foot of the cross. That's where we belong. And, um, and then what happens is that although Joshua and the army had destroyed the five armies of this coalition, the kings, the leaders of the armies, had got away. And word gets to Joshua that they've been found um, hiding in a cave at a place called Makedar. And so what, what Joshua does is he takes a load of the leaders of God's people and he goes up to Makedar with the leaders and most of the army. And what happens is that he drags these kings out and he lies them down on the floor and he makes all the leaders of the army stand on their necks, one after the other, stand on their necks. And of course, what Joshua is showing them is to see the victory that God had given them, that these kings were under their feet. You can see the typology, Satan's under our feet. And Joshua says, look, stand on their necks, see how defenseless they are, hiding in a cave. And so he made them all stand on the back of their necks. And when they'd done that, they killed them and hung them on a tree until sunset. So that kind of said something. Um, and then throughout the rest of chapter 10, because now you like when it comes to, to, to real details of the campaigns for the promised land, you've basically had them now, the details. What happens through the rest of chapter 10 um, is that you get the campaign against the nations in the southern part of Canaan. And, and of course, Israel entered Canaan in the south. So what happens now, and this is all in one chapter, because when God gets going, things really aren't too much of a problem. What happens now is that Makedar, Libnar, Lachish, Giza, Eglon, Hebron, Debir, the Negev region, from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, Goshen, Gibeon, are all destroyed. So there's a bit of a mopping up there. So the south is gone, all right? So they've done um, Jericho, they've done AI, they've had the business with the Gibeonites and the Hivites and the coalition of the five kings surrounding Jerusalem and they've beaten them up. And now they, they go through the south like a dose of salt. Uh, you know, sort of like destroying all the nations that inhabited that part of Canaan. And so first phase over, back to Gilgal. Gilgal, where they got circumcised, back to the cross, with spiritual warfare, always back to the foot of the cross. Because our victory is through the death of Jesus, you see. Now then, in chapter 11, you get the campaign for the north of the land, all right? So now they march north, and now they mop up Hazor, Maidan, Shimnon, Aksaf, the Arabah, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and one or two others who I didn't write down because there's not going to be time to go through them all, all right? And uh, what happened is that here in chapter 11, specifically says that God hardened the hearts of all these nations. Hardened their hearts. I.e., the point is that all these people, they were like, you know, they couldn't wait to get to Israel. You'd have thought, you know, having seen Israel go through the south like a dose of salt, 
you'd have thought that the nations in the north would have been strictly in defence mode. But what God did, he hardened their hearts, so they were out there for the fight. So they all went out there to meet Israel head on and bang, they just got absolutely marmalised, you know. So God hardened their hearts and they all sort of marched to their absolute defeat. And so by the time we get to chapter 11, um, most of the land of Canaan has now been taken. Now, obviously, it's over a period of some years, but uh, the main details, as I say, you know, you don't get that many. Uh, you just get a picture of the campaign overall. Um, in, in chapter 12, you then get a list of all the Canaanite kings who have been defeated, and there are 31 of them all in all. So the point is, you've had a campaign. Israel has fundamentally destroyed and driven out 31 nations. Now, it wasn't all the nations. They didn't get all the land, but they certainly went a good way towards it. Now, in chapter 13, um, you actually get details there of, thus far in the campaign, the areas in Canaan that hadn't been taken yet. So, you know, sort of like here, you get the list of all the areas that are basically where the Canaanites were still ruling and in charge. And so, I mean, the point is, no matter how far you get, there's always more to go in the Lord, obviously. You know, none of us can say we're there. There's always more battling to do in the Christian life. And, um, and then what happens is that the um, Reuben, Gad and half Manasseh now get permission from... Uh, Joshua to, to go back across the Jordan into Transjordan and to uh, settle there and to become the Transjordan tribes, as was agreed with Moses. Now, in chapters 14 to 19, you get the details of how the promised land was apportioned uh, to the tribes of Israel. And this was all done by lot, by casting lot. Um, of course, remember that the Levites themselves had no land because they were serving the Lord. I mean, they were given a few cities, but the Levites, Levi as a tribe, wasn't given a, a, you know, a portion of land at all, but the others were. And so what we're going to actually see now is we're going to do some geography, and we're going to get a picture of how the promised land was actually divided up and apportioned to the 12 tribes. Now, in order to do this, I want you to picture in your minds a map of the southeast of England from the North Norfolk coast down to the south coast. So we're taking in the whole of East Anglia, Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Dover, down, right down to Brighton and, and over into Lincolnshire, that whole part of what you might call East Anglia and the southeast of England. And I want you to just kind of hold that in your mind, that, like the picture of, of that map, as it, were, as it were. Now, what I want you to do is draw a line from Wells, which is right up at the top of North Norfolk, all right? So that's the top bit, place called Wells, all right? Okay, so North Norfolk and to the west of it, right up at the top by the wash, all right? Draw a line in your mind from there right down to Worthing on the south coast, all right? So we've gone from the North Norfolk coast and a line down to Worthing 
and that line basically intersects the London area. Now then, that line that we've drawn from Worthing to Wells, okay, that line is the River Jordan, and that line is the length of the land of Canaan, with Canaan lying to the west of the River Jordan. So the land of Canaan lying to the west of that line, all right? So therefore, that line that we've drawn from Wells down to Worthing, cutting down through the London area, that line is Canaan's eastern border, all right? Now then, for Canaan's western border, the other end of Canaan, you draw a line from Boston in Lincolnshire by the wash, right down, okay, through Peterborough, Bedford, down through Windsor, so we're well to the west of London here, Windsor, Farnham, and it ends in Portsmouth. Now then, that line is the western limit of the land of Canaan. And of course, in the land of Canaan, most of that is the Mediterranean. So, in effect, you've got these two lines, okay? You've got the one from Wells down to Worthing, and then you go across west, and you've got from Boston down to Portsmouth. Now, that area is the area of the land of Canaan, the promised land. And if you do that, all right, Jerusalem on that map is just about in the London area. That's where Jerusalem is, just like the western part of London. But obviously smaller, you know, London, <laughs> Jerusalem was smaller than, you know, as it were, London is now. Now then, if you stand in Worthing, this is at the beginning of the River Jordan, and you head up north, okay, uh, you get to just north of Brighton, to a place called Burgess Hill, and that is where the Dead Sea begins. And that runs north for 45 miles and it ends in Croydon. That is the Dead Sea. And it's 8 to 10 miles wide most of the way up, alright? And uh, if you keep going along that line through Croydon and then up through north um, of London and you get to Watton in Norfolk, there you have the Sea of Galilee, which is about like 10 miles long and maybe 6 miles wide or something like that. And so basically, you know, and that's the Sea of Galilee. So basically what you've got, Canaan, alright, ran north to south for 160 miles. That was its length, from north to south, 160 miles. It was 60 miles across at its widest point, alright. Um, and it was bordered on the east by the River Jordan and on the west by the Mediterranean Sea, all right? And it had the very big Dead Sea in the south and then the much smaller uh, Sea of Galilee in the north, all right? Okay, so that is your picture of the Promised Land. We've basically plonked it on that map of southeast England and it's about the same size. So what we've got to do now is to see how or which tribes got which bit of those areas, alright? So again, we're going to do it by plonking it all on a map of England, the southeast of England. Now then, Judah got the biggest portion by far. I mean, you know, Judah got a massive area. And the area that 
the tribe of Judah got ran from South London down to Brighton. So that was a massive area. And then when you get down to Brighton, you go west as far as Portsmouth. Then if you head north, up through West Sussex, you get to Staines and Chertsey in Surrey. That was the area that Judah got. So I'll do that again. From South London, head south down to Brighton. When you get to Brighton, you then head west as far across as Portsmouth. And then you head north up through uh, Staines and Chertsey in Surrey. That was the area that Judah got. So that was really massive. And it was the land of Judah that had Bethlehem in the north. And Bethlehem was where Staines and Chertsey are. So just around the Staines, Chertsey area in Surrey is where Bethlehem was. So Judah had a whacking great big wedge, um, an area of 65 miles north to south and 35 miles west to east. So they really had a whacking great big chunk there. Next we come on to Simeon. And what happened with the tribe of Simeon is that because Judah had so much, all right, uh, Simeon was given a portion of theirs. So what happened was that Judah gave up to Simeon a large part of theirs, all right? And so what Simeon did, they ended up, all right, with the land in the south from Brighton, you go along the south coast to Portsmouth, all right? And if you then head up to Horsham and Farnham in the north, that was the area that Simeon had. So the tribe of Simeon mainly had West Sussex and a little bit of southwest Surrey. That was the area that Simeon had. Now the tribe of Benjamin, this is easier, the tribe of Benjamin had the greater London area. If you kind of picture inside the M25, that's more or less, that's, that's very close to where the tribe of Benjamin ended up. And it was the tribe of Benjamin, obviously, that included Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was more or less where the city of London is, okay. And, um, and Benjamin also had Jericho, which, interestingly enough, would have been, if you go out the front door here, turn right, a mile up the road would have brought you to Jericho, Epping. Yeah. Right? So the Battle of Jericho, relative to us, happened in Epping. That was all in the land, or what became the land of Benjamin. So we've got, you know, sort of Jerusalem, kind of the city of London, and Jericho, we've got like the Epping, Loughton area, very much around here. Right, then the next tribe was Ephraim. Now, remember, Levi, the tribe of Levi, wasn't apportioned any land, because they were priests to the Lord. They were kind of like the full-time workers. So what happened was that rather than there being a tribe of Joseph, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh were tribes. So the point is, you've got the 12 tribes of Israel. Take away the tribe of Levi because it didn't get any land, and you've got 11 tribes of Israel. But the point is, one of those tribes was the tribe of Joseph. But the tribe of Joseph was always divided into two tribes, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which brings it back up to 12 tribes, all right? So then, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, Joseph's son, where did they get? Right, okay. Well, they got from Epping 
up to Bishop Stortford, all right, because they're just north of where Benjamin was, just north of Jericho, okay. They get from Epping up to Bishop Stortford, so you're heading up the M11 there, okay. Then, when you get to Bishop Stortford, you head west to Dunstable and across to Luton. Luton being in the north of their land. And then when you get to Luton, you go south again, down to High Wycombe, but on your way back to Epping, you dip southwest by way of Reading. <laughs> All right? So Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, they got Hertfordshire, little bit of Bedfordshire, and Buckinghamshire. All right? So we're, 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 we're talking really home counties there, okay? Right, now then, the next tribe was Manasseh, but remember, it's going to be half Manasseh, because Manasseh, half of the tribe, wanted to be outside of the land, all right? So this is the half tribe of Manasseh who are in the land, all right? Now, for them, okay, you've got to... Ephraim was epping up to Bishop Stortford, all right? Now, for Manasseh, we keep heading north, and you go from Bishop Stortford, all right, okay, and you head up to Newmarket. So you head up north and a little bit, a little bit to the east as well. And when you get to, to Newmarket, you travel west across to Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire, and then south back down to Dunstable. Dunstable also being the northern limit of the tribe of Ephraim, who were to the south of the tribe of Manasseh, all right? And uh, so half Manasseh in the land, they got a little bit of West Essex, just a smidge, all right, a smidge in a West Essex, and Bedfordshire and Cambridgeshire. And it was in the, the land of half Manasseh, all right, where you got Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Do you remember where they did the blessings and the cursings? All right. So, so that, that is, is the area that had Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in. Right, next, we come to the tribe of Issachar, all right? Now, Issachar didn't get much, all right? Um, they, they, they got about 15 square miles, all right, uh, from Newmarket up to Lake and Heath, and then across to Ely. So, I mean, you know, kind of a splodge of Cambridgeshire they get. Not, not very impressive, that. I, 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 I don't know if this is political correctness. They didn't get much, you know, because of ecological considerations. You know, is a car a good idea nowadays with all the pollution? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know whether that was anything to do with it, but, but, but they just got that little, little block of Cambridgeshire there. Right, then we come on to Zebulun, and I defy anyone to get a joke out of Zebulun. Um, Zebulun got a bit of land only fractionally bigger than Issachar. So, so they, they didn't do much better, but, but they got again 15 mile area or so north of Ely. So, 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 so they were to the north of, of Cambridgeshire and, and up into like West Norfolk. So they just got a little bit as well. Um, then we come to Naphtali. And uh, now they were to the north of Issachar and Zebulun, all right, so we're, we're heading further up north now. And uh, to get there, you've got to go through Downham Market and King's Lynn, and you head up to Wells, right at the westernmost border of the North Norfolk coast. So, you're, you know, really where the wash is there, okay? That's, that's their, their splodge 
up there. So so you're you're really talking about you know sort of North Norfolk and bit of you know sort of like Cambridge touching Lincolnshire, all all that that kind of area there. So so they're heading well up to the north. Um, next we we come to the tribe of Asher. Now um, they were parallel to Zebulun and Naphtali, but but to their west. All right. So, so, so we're, we're going north and, and heading south again now, but on the west, all right? And uh, in, in the southern borders of Asher, you've got Huntingdon, all right? And, and then you head up north uh, through the Peterborough area, up, up again to where the wash starts. So, so there you've got Cambridgeshire up into Lincolnshire, and that's kind of the tribe of Asher. And it's like if you were travelling south to north up the tribe of Asher's land, all right, then if you turned right, okay, you'd have Naphtali and Zebulun's land, you know, lying on the side. Uh, Zebulun to the north and Issachar to the south. Okay, so this is, this is all, hope this is all going in, is it? Oh, good, it is, it is. Well, perhaps we'll do a test on this next week. Um, so, so there, Asher, Cambridgeshire, and up into Lincolnshire. Now, then you get the tribe of Dan. Now the tribe of Jan, Dan, Jan, the tribe of the tribe of Dan is not straightforward, all right, because they started up in one place, but they ended up somewhere else that wasn't even in the land, all right. So so Dan ants in their pants or something. But anyway, originally Dan were given the extreme southwestern area of the land of. Canaan. And that is where the Philistines were located. Now, when I say the Philistines, okay, you'll kind of be aware that throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, the Philistines keep appearing. So, so clearly the Philistines were not wiped out at this particular juncture. So the point is, Dan is a portion, the southwestern area of the land, and that was Philistia obviously where the Philistines were. And the land we're talking about here is from Reading down to Basingstoke and that Farnham area, all right? So what we're talking about here is Hampshire. Think Hampshire and you've got the area that Dan was originally allocated. But the point was Dan could not handle the Philistines and they gave up. They were allocated this area, they went in there and they gave up on it. I mean, they couldn't get it, they couldn't hold it, and they thought, blow it. And so what they did is they migrated uh, to the, that's kind of like across the north and to the east. And they went up, they started off at the extreme southwest, so, you know, Hampshire area. And what they do is they migrate across the length and breadth of the land and they end up in the northeastern part of it, but just outside the land, in fact, to the east of the River Jordan. And uh, so they ended up on the, the eastern section of the North Norfolk coast. So they ended up around Cromer Sheringham, just outside of the land. So technically they were now a Transjordan tribe as well. Okay. So they started off at the extreme southwest, but ended up in exactly the opposite corner in the extreme northeast and just outside the land. So they were around Sheringham and Cromer and 
jolly nice it is up there too. But technically, they became a Transjordan tribe as well. Which, of course, at that juncture, brings us to the official Transjordan tribes. Remember? Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. Because they were official, they were allocated, or they chose areas outside of the land, all right? And that was agreed. Dan ended up being a Transjordan tribe, basically, because it couldn't do the business where it was supposed to do the business. So they almost kind of got driven out, whereas the other Transjordan tribes were, their positioning was what you might call completely kosher, all right? Now then, in order to do the Transjordan tribes, all right, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, let's remind ourselves of the Jordan. The Jordan is going from the south coast, all right, around Brighton, Worthing, down there, okay, kind of north and a little bit east, so, so I'd say n n north northeast or nor nor as a, I remember in my scouting days, nor nor all right. And uh, so they're heading up there, up to Wells, okay, on the North Norfolk coast. So that is the River Jordan. And remember, as you head up north, all right, you know, you go a little bit up Burgess Hill area and, and you've got the massive, you know, sort of like, you know, the Dead Sea, which goes up, uh, you know, the South London and all that, blah, blah, blah. And then a bit further up in Norfolk, you get the little Sea of Galilee, okay. Now, the thing to remember is that the Transjordan tribes, the land is to the west of that river, all right? The Transjordan tribes, including Dan, who are now right up the top, they're on the east, the eastern side of it, okay. Now then, so, so, so let's, let's find out exactly where they were. First of all, Reuben, all right? Now we're going to head from south to north, all right? So come south down the Jordan, okay, heading towards the south coast. Now then, where was the tribe of Reuben? Right, well, imagine you're going, all right, to France for the day, and you're heading to Dover. You go out through Rochester, and you've got Seven Oaks and Maidstone, all that area, kind of heading down through Canterbury to Dover. In other words, you've got North Kent. That is where Reuben was, all right? North Kent, that area there, okay? I wonder sometimes if they... They stood near Rochester, gazing out across the Thames, longingly wishing they'd gotten south end the other side. I mean, I don't know. They might have done, they might not have done. But nevertheless, the tribe of Reuben, they've got North Kent, okay? Now then, so who were the lucky ones? Who got south end? Well, Gad got south end. Because if you head north, across the Thames, Gad basically got Essex, right? The tribe of Gad got Essex up to south, south End, and then up to Harwich, and then across to Saffron Warden. Basically, west of the M11. That's where, that, that's where Gad was. So, so from where we are, the M11 heads up north and that, to the west of the M11 in the Essex area, that is where the tribe of Gad ended up. So, of course, obviously, in... in sorry, east, sorry, east. So, obviously, at, at, at part of their southernmost point, they've got a good old South End, you see, so they were lucky ones. Reuben just had Rochester, obviously. Canvey right. Island. Pardon? And Canvey Island as well, of course. Right, then we come to the tribe of half Manasseh, okay? Now then, where did they get? Well, again, we've got to keep heading north, because the tribe of half Manasseh, who were outside the land, they got most of Suffolk, 
So Bury St Edmunds, cross to Ipswich, and into the southernmost part of Norfolk. That was where half Manasseh got. And of course, if you head a few miles north of them, you've got the southernmost parts of Dan, do you remember, who migrated and ended up in the north, Norfolk coast around Sheringham and Cromer around there. So half Manasseh are kind of most of Suffolk and just going into the south of Norfolk. And in actual fact, they were on the same latitude as their other half of their tribe, the other side of the Jordan, was in the land. So in actual fact, they were a bit like butterfly wings, with, with the River Jordan being the body of the butterfly. You've got the Jordan, all right, and you've got Manasseh in the land to the west, and Manasseh Transjordan tribe in the east was the same latitude, so literally like the wings of a butterfly there, same kind of distance, north, south, etc, etc, alright. And, um, and then also, just among the details, uh, that's how the tribes were apportioned their pieces of land. But Joshua and Caleb were rewarded with land on their own as individuals. And sort of the, the thing about Joshua and Caleb, why they come for this special treatment here, is you'll remember that they were the only two people yet alive who came out of Egypt. They didn't die in the wilderness because, remember, they were two of the original 12 spies who went in to spy out the land of Canaan after Moses brought them out of Egypt. And because Joshua and Caleb came back saying, hey, you know, the Lord is with us, we can take the land. And you remember the other ten spies says, oh no, we can't, there's giants and we're like grasshoppers compared to them, blah, 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 blah. Then what happened was the whole generation, including Moses, died in the wilderness and their children are now going into Canaan itself. But Joshua and Caleb, because of their faith, they survived this and so these are the only two who came out of Egypt who are now going into Canaan. And the reward for that faith is that they are given land of their own. And um, Caleb got Hebron, a place called Hebron. Um, now Hebron was 20 miles south of London, so um, that's kind of the Leatherhead Rygate area. So next time you drive through Leatherhead Rygate, I expect Gary does every now and then, that's, that's, that's good old Caleb. And uh, jo Joshua got Reading. See, so that's nice, isn't it? So, they, they got those two places as kind of reward because of their faith from the word go. Right, then, then you move into chapter 20. And um, here we, we, we have the cities of refuge that are now specified. Now, you remember the cities of refuge. Uh, we looked at these before. Uh, remember, if, 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 if someone had been murdered or killed, then an avenger of blood was sometimes sent out from the family to, to, you know, to go and avenge that death. And the idea of the cities of refuge was that, I mean, say, say you'd accidentally killed someone, if you fled to a city of refuge, the avenger of blood couldn't touch you there. And what happened was that the Levites in that city would, as it were, investigate and find out whether it was an accidental thing, in which case they would shield you from the um, avenger of blood or the kinsman redeemer, 
as they were also called, or if they investigated and found out that it was murder, then they would hand you over to the Avenger of Blood. So, so you had these cities of refuge uh, that we saw earlier, and here they are actually specified. And there are three in the land, and there are three outside of the land uh, dotted amongst the Transjordan tribes. I'll just uh, locate the, uh, the three in the land. The first one was Kedesh. Um, now, that was, that, that was just south of Cromer you know, up, up in the extreme north, so a few miles south of Cromer there. Um, the second one was Shechem. Uh, now that was kind of like Dunstable and Luton area, so you're, you're coming down a bit. And, and then the third one was, was Hebron, and that was Caleb's place. Um, you know, the Leatherhead and Rygate area. So, so there were the three in the land, and uh, there were three more outside of the land as well. Now, in chapter 21, uh, we have details of the, um, the fact that the Levites are given certain towns and grazing lands. Now, remember, they didn't get an inheritance as such. The other tribes have all got a block of land. They say, this is our land as a tribe. What happens with the Levites? is because they were dotted around the whole of the land. You know, I mean, there were Levites all over the place. And what happens is they were given certain towns and pasture lands dotted around all over the place, but no actual inheritance. You know, these were just cities and pasture lands apportioned to them. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously because they were the priests and the priestly assistants, they were kind of Israel's spiritual leaders, if you like, the full-time workers or whatever. Right, so, so with that, we now have the end of the conquest of Canaan and the apportioning of the land, all right? So with all that done, in chapter 22, the Transjordan tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, are now sent home. They're free to go. With all the business, basically, in the Promised Land done, these tribes are now free to go. Um, you know, so off, off, off they go. You know, you'll remember, uh, you know, Reuben to North Kent, uh, Gad to Essex and Manasseh basically to Suffolk. So off they go across the Jordan. They have to go back down, cross the Jordan and then span out into their allocated lands, all right? And so now Joshua says to them, you're free to go. You've done your duty, just like we arranged. You've done your bit. Because remember that those tribes always represent doing your bit. Because do you remember when originally they said, we want these lands outside of the Promised Land? The whole point was that it looked like they were shirking their responsibility because there was no fighting to do for those lands. And you remember how Moses says, well, you can, but you've got to fight the battles of Canaan with us first and then you can go. They're always a picture of doing your bit. Can you see what I mean? No shirking in the Christian life, okay? Everybody's got to do their bit for the good of the larger body, as it were. So now, off they go. They've done their bit, off they go across Jordan. And what they do is, as they cross the Jordan, they build themselves an altar. And in their minds, the reason they do this is that although they are now going to be living officially outside of the land, they are Jews. They are tribes of Israel. They are one in the Lord with the tribes in the land. And in order to emphasize that, they build 
this altar. And the idea being that this altar, in their mind, links them with the tribes inside the land. So, these tribes, on their way out to go to their lands, they build an altar to celebrate and to remind themselves of their absolute oneness with those the other side of the river. But then something goes terribly wrong. And what goes wrong is quite simply that the tribes remaining in the land, the other nine tribes and the other half of Manasseh, get word that these tribes have built this altar on their way out of the Promised Land. They hear of it. And you get a classic example of misunderstanding and of the dangers of misunderstanding and the importance of establishing what is really going on before you act. Because the tribes that remain inside the land jump to the completely false conclusion that these tribes who were leaving the land had built an altar in order to commit idolatry. You know, that, that kind of now they've left the land they're virtually splitting off from the rest of us and doing their own thing, and now they're into idolatry. And the tribes who remain in the land see, they hear about this altar, and they jump to the conclusion that Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh are virtually committing treason, cutting themselves off from the rest of them, and, get, you know, and getting themselves into idolatry. And so what happens is that the tribes that remain inside the land, they now declare war on the Transjordan tribes, dispatch an army to go and kill them. Now this is civil war amongst God's people. But fortunately, common sense prevails. They weren't all idiots. And eventually, some of the leaders managed to get themselves heard above the mob. And a delegation is sent to the Transjordan tribes to find out exactly what was going on. Now, as soon as that delegation got to the Transjordan tribes, the Transjordan tribes were able to clear up the misunderstanding totally. And they explained, no, we built that altar as, as a sign of our oneness with the rest of you, you know, that we're one, we're one in the Lord. And so the delegation was then able to go back to the tribes in the land and explain it all. And of course, they realise, oh no, it's okay, we don't have to invade them. But can you see how Israel came to the edge of complete and utter civil war based on misunderstanding because people hadn't gone there to find out exactly what was happening? Uh, and there you have Satan using rumour and hearsay and misunderstanding. And it is so easy to misunderstand. And this is why we've got to be very, very careful that we don't jump to conclusions about this, that and the other. You know, before we find out the fact. Obviously, you can't find out the facts firsthand about absolutely everything. But I think we all know in our own personal lives, don't we, how easy it is for me to misunderstand the actions of someone else and for someone else to misunderstand my actions. Can you see what I mean? If only we would find out to just wait, to just pause, not be quite so quick on the uptake, not so quick to dispatch an army to go and sort the problem out. Can you see what I mean?
And so <clears throat> it's a real lesson in just stepping back and establishing the facts <clears throat> before you actually march in to try and sort out a problem that doesn't actually exist. And um, it's easy to create dreadful problems by marching in to sort problems out that didn't exist. And you create the problems when you march in to sort them out. You see what I mean? That's exactly what was happening here. But, you know, common sense did, you know, prevail and uh, the civil war was averted. So mission accomplished by the delegation and misunderstanding cleared up. And then in chapter 23, <coughs> we move on now. We're coming to the end of Joshua's life. He's getting on a bit now. And uh, in chapter 23, what he does is he, he gets all the nation's leaders together and, uh, you know, sort of like from all the tribes and that he sends word out and they all, you know, have this kind of powwow. And, um, and he gives you, if you like, you know, farewell teaching and that. And he, he urges them to continued faithfulness to the Lord. And he warns them of the consequences should they go against the Lord and be unfaithful to him. So there's a word there to the leaders. And then in chapter 24, having got the leaders together, he now basically gets the whole nation together. And Israel did this. It must have taken some organising, but they did do this. You know, the whole nation would, you know, meet at certain times and in certain places. I mean, obviously not every single individual, but the point is that every community, every tribe would have, you know, like sent representatives and, you know, and stuff like that, so that, that, that what happened at these get-togethers would have filtered back through everyone uh, throughout the land. And what happens is that, that here he gets the whole nation together at Shechem, um, which was basically Luton. So, you know, I expect, I expect they met at the airport. And uh, he gets them all together at Luton. And uh, he gives them the old once over about being faithful too and warns them as a nation. So he's warned the leaders. And uh, now he, he, you know, he warns the nation. And, and he's saying, you must remain faithful to the Lord. And, uh, and then he dies. Uh, probably after the meeting finished. Uh, you know, I mean, possibly... I mean, you know, I don't know, perhaps perhaps 757 came in a bit low, I, I don't know, but he dies aged 110 years old, so it's not, not, not a bad innings there, is it? And, um, and the book ends up very much setting the scene for what follows, and what follows, and what we'll be doing next time is the book of Judges. And this book of Joshua, it ends by commenting on the fact that as long as Joshua was alive, or the leaders who worked with him, because you've got Joshua, and then you've got the leaders of God's people who were alive at the same time, if, if you like, on his leadership team, or whatever, I don't know if they had badges, or, you know, but you know what I mean, ministry team type thing, right? Now, as long as Moses, or the leaders who worked with him were alive, that whole generation, all right, throughout that time, Israel was obedient to the Lord. All right. Um, but of course, the hint being that once they all died, the story was going to be very, very different. And indeed, when we come on to the book of Judges next time, you'll see just how different it was. With the death of that generation of leaders who led Israel into the Promised Land, with their death came also the death of Israel's faithfulness to God as a nation. And... Uh, in the book of Judges, 
we're going to see the most, well, the, the story of the most appalling apostasy, falling away, a cycle of falling away, coming back to the Lord, then that leader, that man who brought them back to the Lord dies and the nation falls away again into idolatry. Then God raises up fresh leadership and Israel comes back to the Lord and then that leadership dies and Israel plummets into idolatry again. That's the, that's the kind of uh, pattern that we're going to see as we move into Judges next time. Also, just ending off here, uh, Joseph's bones. Do you remember Joseph? Number two in Egypt, right? Joseph's bones were buried in the land, as he asked, when he, you know, not, you know, just before he died, he asked if uh, he could be buried in the land, because even though it was hundreds of years before they got into the land, he knew it was going to happen, because God had shown him that. And now his bones um, are kind of buried in Manasseh's portion, so Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire kind of area, somewhere up there, Joseph's bones are. Don't start digging, because not literally, but on our map, superimposing Israel onto the map of the southeast of England. And uh, so Joseph's bones are buried there. And then Eliezer, who was the high priest, Joshua was the leader of the people, Eliezer was the high priest. You'll remember it started off, Moses was the leader of God's people, and Aaron, his brother, was the high priest, all right? Joshua has taken over from Moses, he's died. Aaron's son, Eliezer, took over from Aaron as the high priest, and now he dies. And his son, Phinehas, who would have been Aaron's grandson, obviously takes his place. So we're ending here with the death of the leadership that led Israel into the land of Canaan. And um, we've covered in this book a time span of about 25 years. That's all, not long. Um, the, 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 the actual conquest of Canaan, we've covered 25 years, the actual conquest would have been six or seven of those years, alright? So the early chap chapters 1 to 11, you're dealing with about six or seven years. And then obviously the settling in the land and the apportioning it and all that, sorting it all out, that, that covered um, a further few years. So. We've covered a time span in Joshua of about 20, 25 years all in all. So we're still around 1400 BC, so we haven't really moved forward in time too much. Right, so Israel, they're in the land, they're out of Egypt, they're through the wilderness, they're now in the land, having fundamentally taken the land from the Canaanites, albeit they didn't do it especially properly, uh, there were areas left untouched, um, you know, so they haven't got the land completely, but they're settled in the land, they're in fellowship up to the point where Joshua and Eliezer die, and the Lord is blessing them. And uh, next time in the book of Judges, we're actually going to be moving on and looking at the next 300 years of their history in the Promised Land. And if the book of Joshua has been a book of victory and God's blessing, then, then we're going to see in the book of Judges that that was only one side of the story and that Joshua's warning to them of the importance of remaining faithful and the consequences of getting out of fellowship and being unfaithful, well, we're going to see just how necessary that warning was 
and, and how being more than a warning, it was virtually a prophecy. So next time we move on to the Book of Judges and Israel's first 300 years as a nation having freshly conquered the land of Canaan or the promised land as it is otherwise known.